When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Bulls podcast which is now proudly brought to you by Zenny Optical. That may or may not be true for us, but it certainly is for the Bulls who finally get a jersey sponsor with the little known and aforementioned Zenny Optical. And to be honest with you, whilst I don't love the idea of the Bulls having a jersey sponsor and you know potentially ruining, ruining that sacred jersey, I'm kind of happy that it's by a company that we don't necessarily know much of and the fact that we can barely see the logo on the jersey itself, which is kind of ironic given the business Zenny Optical are kind of into. But but what we have seen, unfortunately, is a couple losses here to start the season. So I'm going to take you through the Bulls versus Sixers game as well as Bulls versus Pistons. So let's start with the Bulls versus Sixers game, opening night for the Bulls this regular season and joining me now to discuss Bulls v Sixers is my good friend CBE Fred otherwise known as Fred Pfeiffer. Fred how are you doing mate? Mark it's an honor you know uh I, I know we do go at it quite a bit on on Twitter just a bit but um j- occasionally but uh <laughs> I will I will begrudgingly admit I do respect your Bulls knowledge and uh you know we're both on different ends of the spectrum no doubt about it I, I don't think we can get on further ends of the spectrum spectrum for most most issues but i will i do i will say you are the most intelligent person i've ever talked to on that end of the spectrum which is usually <laughs> the wrong end is that the best compliment i can give you i'll take i it. guess I, I guess my return <laughs> serve is how, how have you felt about nikola miritich and his start of the season oh gosh did you see my tweet yesterday where yeah, of course i did have a moment of just anxiety and almost like <laughs> mental collapse where i realized oh my god because uh, I was, I think I was reading, I was think I was reading a tweet from uh, our good friend, mutual friend Kevin Anderson over at NBC, and he talked. He had, he kind of painted a picture of Nico in the All Star game, and I just 
it, it literally felt like a, a mule had kicked me in the chest as I realized that, oh, my God, Nico Miritich in the All-Star game. And then my thoughts wandered to Australia and you and the tweets I'd have to endure. I got to admit, I mean, his numbers, I never in a million years would expect him to put up the numbers he did in the first two games, especially with his, you know, disastrous preseason where he was like three of 17 from three. And, you know, it, God love him. I mean, I'm really I, I really hope he does great. He's from all accounts he's a nice guy and i know he'll he'll, he's brought you a ton of joy in your life he's brought me (laughs) nothing but misery but uh occasional joy uh but uh, overall i mean if he makes the all-star team the bulls don't win 44 which is our bet right and i'm wearing a kirk heinrich jersey i mean 2019 is going to get off to a a rip-roaring start for me in, in in the negative my gosh, what a year that will be. You, you can't see it right now, but my fingers are crossed and <laughs> I'm just hoping for it. There you go. But anyways, unlike unlike Meritich, the Bulls in game one of the season weren't as hot. Well, they, they were for the first quarter. That first quarter was, was Meritich-esque, I guess. The, the Bulls team couldn't miss hitting 13, 13 shots in a row at one point, leading the Sixers 41-38 to 38 after the first quarter. How, how are you feeling after that first quarter? I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure you would have been feeling pretty good of it, about yourself. I, I'm... And correct me if I'm not wrong, but I'm pretty sure you didn't love it, watch the game live. So I don't know how much you knew about it afterwards, but take me through your thoughts of that first quarter and then, you know, what you thought from uh, thereafter. Well, so I, I you, you kind of touched on, I have a unique view of some of these games. You know, I'm an assistant coach for my son's fourth grade travel basketball team. So we have practices on Tuesday and Thursday nights. So anytime we have a Tuesday or Thursday game, I'm not going to watch the game live. But I will occasionally check uh, check Twitter or the score, and you know, right when I saw the, it was they had. I think at the point I checked my phone, they had thirty eight points or so, and it was still the fourth quarter. Fourth quarter, I almost had a, you know, call a timeout for practice and and go, you know, outside and start screaming for joy. I couldn't believe it, and then, and then you follow the Twitter narrative as it devolves into a, you know, just just rage and hate, and you know, Parker sucks. I'm the tank again. The tank's far yeah, up again. Tax on me. Attacks on me. You know, personal tax on me for my pro Parker stance. <laughs> and you know, I just got to put the phone away and enjoy the rest of my son's practice. Uh, so then I come back and I sit down and I, I, I you know, we, we we touch base a little bit that evening and you know, a little bit distracted with family stuff. And then I really watch the game on Friday. So I get the narrative from Twitter. And then I break down the game and the narrative that you see is so much different than what do I feel about the game. So a few points, you know, Levine, no doubt, offensively, absolutely stellar. I mean, just incredible. looks healthy. Uh, turnover, turnovers have to come down. I've yep. noticed with him in the preseason, I don't know if you feel this way too, like in the first game, the, his turnovers kind of like come in bunches where for like three or four, five consecutive plays in that last preseason game in the second quarter, he had this, and I felt like he had it in the second quarter against the, the Sixers. He just, I don't know if he loses concentration, but just really dumb turnovers inexcusable his turnovers and Dunn's turnovers to me are just sometimes so inexcusable where they just don't they shouldn't happen they're still young you know, you hope they grow out of that but uh on the defensive side of the ball I thought he was poor and I thought every person on the on the team was an abomination with the potential exception of Wendell Carter Jr. you know Portis celebration of Portis no doubt he was fantastic again defensively, there were so many instances that I pointed out, if you look at my Twitter line, that they're just inexcusable. And, and uh, there was one play in particular where there was a, uh, in the second quarter, 
we had Levine guarding Ben Simmons and uh, Justin Holiday was guarding. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember who he was guarding specifically. Uh, but anyhow, there was a, it was like a fourth grade play where they just basically uh, had they, they started with Simmons at the free throw line. They did a back pick on Levine, and Simmons rolls off the pick, and, and Holiday didn't leave his man to. Uh, it was Reddick. It was Reddick who set the pick. So Holiday was on Reddick. And he and and then Levine like they either you switch on that play, which I think was probably the proper thing to do, or you fight through the pick. And Levine didn't even fight through the pick, you know. Dunk Simmons, momentum changed. That's just like basic defense that should not happen to professionals. I mean, this is stuff that we go over with fourth graders, and watching that and the continued display of poor defense in the second quarter. No one's more positive on this team than me. But to see and witness this this kind of defense is just disheartening. It's disturbing. And I don't know. I don't see, like, ramifications for some of these guys. Holiday was awful. He was absolutely awful on both ends of the court. He was awful in every preseason game with the exception of the win against Indiana. And he's, what, are the, what are the negative ramifications for Holiday? He just keeps on playing. There's nothing. After that play happened, there was a timeout immediately after. Both those guys, Levine and Holiday, were both on the court. They shouldn't have been on the court. A message needs to be sent to whoever was wrong there that we cannot tolerate that kind of defense. It's inexcusable. And so um, I, I know I've rambled on a little bit. What say you? Well, I mean, the problem with that, and I don't necessarily disagree with you on, on, on your, your uh, summary there, but the, the problem with that is who do you put on? Now, if you take Zach Levine off, his backup at the moment is Antonio Blakeney, who is probably a worse defender Terrible. than Zach Levine. And at the moment, the Bulls aren't really running with a backup small forward. Chandler Hutchinson is not getting any minutes. It doesn't look like Fred Hoiberg has much faith with Jabari Parker as that small forward. So they're not really running a traditional a traditional wing. And I, I mentioned this on Twitter, Fred, and I know you loved it, but this team sorely lacks Denzel Valentine right now, which is... <laughs> Crazy to say, but beyond that, they even uh, look. We've we've gotten into it about this player as well, but they definitely lack or need someone like David Waba. But they they just don't have that backup option where mm. if you take off Zach Levine, you can't put him on for a defensive player. And I think that's why someone like Justin Holiday gets the minutes he does because what other option is there? You you would be hoping someone like Chandler Hutchinson could be NBA ready and ready to come in straight away. That's what we were sold. He was meant to be a more mature, ready to, uh, ready-made sort of prospect, but he does not look that look that way at all. So the team sort of needs Valentine, but again, Denzel not the strongest defender. So to me, whilst that Sixers game there were so there were some encouraging performances, individual performances to to say the least. It was more of an extension of what we saw in preseason. So we saw strong uh, strong offensive performances from Zach Levine and Bobby Portis. A lot of bad defense, a lot of bad team defense. Jabari Parker looked good in transition offense, but everything else, yeah, not so well, uh, not so great. But then again, that this this game really exposed the concerns that we have at small forward and at point guard, which was sort of just touched on. Yeah, I, there's a again though when I, when I read the Twitter narrative, it's often different than when I see on tape. So Payne got torched, you know, probably rightly so. Mm. He didn't shoot the ball well. He did not play well. He did not have a great game. And to be he fair, five Payne, he was he was he was being guarded by Ben Simmons, whereas someone like Archie Diakono, who I thought played better than Payne, he's not necessarily matching up against starters in that case. But Payne was bad. 
No doubt. No doubt he was bad. He was not remotely uh, defensively. I'm, I'm just focusing on the defense here. He was not even remotely as bad as Blake and he was. No, Blake and in in that game, I, I, I could, you highlighted one that I noticed. I've been noticing him too, the way he fights through picks, which is he doesn't. You know, he he just is obliterated by an, an average set pick, and 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 you highlighted one where Arch uh, Arch not in the NBA. He did he does fight through picks much better, and and that is something. He's a superior player to Blake and on the defensive end, but Blake and defense, it, there's no excuse for not boxing out. I mean, our good friend Gustavo was was highlighting a a video of Parker's poor effort on a defensive rebound. No doubt, I'm not going to justify his poor effort there. If you watch the entire sequence, it's clear it was Blakeney's man who got the rebound. He didn't even attempt to box him out, and he just watched the play. So, yeah, Parker looks bad, but it all starts with the failure of a fundamental ability on Blakeney to do a box out. That guy is terrible defensively, and and no one mentions it on Twitter. It's like some of these guys like Holiday and Blakeney just go. We avoid the Twitter, the Bulls Twitter. I love it, but there's some guys that just are – eviscerated in Payne and Parker. And there's other guys that just, you know, roam free without much criticism in, in Holiday and Blakeney. I don't understand it. I don't know if you've figured out why. What, what are the reasons? Well, I mean, I would counter that they roam free given that you're ex- you exist on Twitter and, and you, you definitely don't miss guys like Justin Holiday. So, um, <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. But look, I mean, there's, there's a larger thing at play here with someone like Cameron Payne, for example. And it's the same thing Chris Dunn and Zach Levine sort of have to battle with carrying that stigma of seeing former Bulls being traded for a, an underwhelming player. Now, Zach Levine is copying some love at the moment because he looks like to be an improved player. And Larry Markin never really had, had to go through that because he exceeded expectations. So I have no doubt if Cameron Payne came over in that trade and was playing well that he would be uh, not receiving the hate that he currently is. So a part of it is that, but at the same time, he's, he's really bad. So, But I, I mean... It, it, well, you you hit on it though. You hit on it. Pain is the manifestation of of the of the the, the gar packs at, at the worst. It's a part. You know, of that, that trade. It's a part of it. it, 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 it I think it's a big part of it. I think it's a big part of it. If you look at gar packs's worst move, they're all tied. You can you can see the bloodline right back into pain. The drafting of McDermott, the trading for you know Gary Smith, uh, um, you know, that Harris. whole that, Gary Harris. Excuse me. Uh, that whole trade. That's Carpax hit the worst, and then sending him to Oklahoma City and a blood player like Taj Gibson and Doug McDermott. There, there it is, right there, the manifestations. That's why he gets unusual amount of heat and hate, and then also because he sucks. But <laughs> and Parker, you know, is another controversial signing, and and people are just looking for every mistake that he makes. And you know, I, I've drawn. I just grow weary of trying to justify it anymore. Um, I think he had some decent moments in the game, and especially in the second half offensively. But you know, nobody really played well. well but I do want to highlight. Let's one- talk Parker. Let's talk Parker because I know we've I've had you on recently a couple of times now. And for those who aren't aware, it's probably going to be more frequent getting you on here. But I think um, our battles with Parker will probably continue into the weeks or months going on. But I think with someone like Jabari, it comes down to expectations. And, you know, you're talking about accountability before on someone like Justin Holiday. Justin Holiday is a vet who's making $4.7 million. And whilst he hasn't been great, that's, I think that's part of it too. Whereas Jabari, he's coming in as a former number two pick. He's meant to be coming in as a guy that doesn't necessarily play much defense, plays a lot of offense. Pay, he's getting paid $20 million. So he's coming in with that expectation. So 
I guess that also heightens why people are being, uh, uh, I, I guess a little bit harsh on Jabari. And look, I, I, I think I could, I can attest to being harsh on Jabari at times, but I want to, you're I doing want... it to irritate me. I know you, you're doing a little bit much, a little bit to get a rise out of me. <laughs> no, I know no, deep no, down no. You... Look, I, I gave him some credit <laughs> with Grace credit too. And I think to defend Jabari a little bit, it's hard to ask him to be out there being, one, the lead scorer in that second unit, but two, the creator of that second unit, given the the talent that he's surrounded with. Like the situations yes. when he's out there with Payne, Archie Diacono, uh, Blakeney, let's say, and maybe Wendell Carter Jr. That, that's an inexperienced five-man unit that doesn't have a lot of defense. It's it's tough ask to make Jabari do stuff out there, give, you know, ignoring his his issues that he does have uh, currently as well, just in his general play. It's, it's, it's hard to ask any player to go out there and make that lineup a, a functional one. But I wanted to talk to you about Jabari and the benching because this is something we've been talking about recently and I know it's something you've been very vocal about, but after game one, you were... Or before game one, you're quite critical of Fred Hoiberg, but going into game one and after game one, do you have your has your view changed? Do you think benching Jabari is still the right decision? No, I don't, and I'll I'll, I'll stand by. I know it looks ridiculous, and some people are probably laughing listening to this, especially after how well Port has played in the first game. I, I kind of outlined those reasons in an article that I, I think you read. There's several reasons I'd like to touch on a few of them now. And let's not forget before we stop this to definitely talk about Hoiberg because there is another issue that I, I need to address with them, which is uh, maddening. Uh, this he created Fred created a problem here that you didn't need to have. You didn't need it to happen. Number one, I think the most important thing is Portis has already embraced this role. And and to expect Parker to perform on a new team with new teammates that he's, he's, he's still learning how to adapt and where, where, where he should be with this team and expect him after, what, three preseason games? He was benched after three preseason games. Uh, and and, and he, I think primarily because he didn't shoot well in those games, Parker's in his four years in the NBA, he's shot 49, 49.3, 49, and 48.2. If there's anything consistent about Parker, he's going to shoot consistently. And to just say, well, we're going we're gonna to bench him and, and put and Portis in there, who – albeit played very strong in the preseason, he played strong coming off the bench. Why would you shift the role on a guy that you didn't need to do and cause a problem for Parker? You should just kept him in there. And I'm not the only one who believes this. Kendall Gill said the same thing. But more importantly, there's, there's two other reasons, I think, and a more important one. Number one, Parker's a much better facilitator. He's a much better passer than Portis is. Portis is like a shoot-first player. He had four assists the entire preseason. Parker had four assists in the in the uh, Denver game alone. He had 13 in the preseason. I think that's an underrated part of Parker's game is he's a better passer. Why would you throw another shoot first guy in with Levine on the front on the front court? That's one reason. Number two, I also feel that Parker at the four is a better defender than Portis. I, I Portis is not a good defender. I, I, I he showed it in this game. He's 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 terrible. He's a terrible defensive player. He doesn't have athleticism. He doesn't protect the rim. He's not a, he's a good, I think an average to good rebounder, but he's not a game. You need to have, I think Parker's a better answer when he wants to play better. I said this to my friend, I I saw more good defensive tape on Parker in the Milwaukee uh, Celtics uh, playoff series. than I've seen in Portis for his entire career. So, we can have an argument who they're, they're both not ever going to be life changers, right? Defensively, we can have a continual argument on who's better. I think Parker is better defensively. Do you agree or do you disagree? 
you, you, you had a key word in there and, and that key word was wants. Uh, you said when Jabari wants to be a good defender and that's probably key. And he's coming into a new situation and hasn't necessarily shown that effort that you would like to see from a new guy rolling up. And whilst Portis is not necessarily an effective defender, uh, defender rather, and you know, you can at least expect him to try, even though he's not necessarily going to get to the right position. He's, he's going to be, uh, you know, not helping correctly, all those sorts of things that we expect out of poor defenders. Bobby Portis does those things. He's not a strong defender. We know that, but he at least is, uh, is actively trying, which is, I think, something you can say about Japari Parker on all occasions. He gets lost quite frequently. There was a lot of occasions in this game against the Sixers where he was just sort of floating back into the lane and, he left the shooter open, and that doesn't make sense. But another point you raised there was the fact that Jabari is a nice playmaker. His, his, his assist game has probably been something that hasn't been spoken enough about, or his passing and playmaking game. But isn't that a reason? That's probably the primary reason as to why Hoiberg made this change, to get him into that second unit, because that second unit currently doesn't have that, I guess, creator off the bench like in that sense. So... Based on the arguments that you just put forward, don't you think he's better suited to the second unit? No, because I think he's creating for with lesser talent with that second unit, whereas That's Bobby true. would be would be the focus. He would be the focus of that second unit. Like I think Blake and he just screws up Parker horrible. I, I don't like those two on the court together. Blake and he is a he's a he's a first class chucker who's you know shoot he, he's he's a, he's got a shoot, shoot first mentality. And he, his rate of shots is insane to me, and I just think he puts Parker in bad situations. I don't think they work well together at all. I'd like to keep those two away from each other as much as possible. Another thing that I don't think is talked about enough is this role, the six-man role, for a guy like Parker who's still 23. Yeah, he's young, but he's coming off a, two major injuries to his knee. That's a difficult thing. I, 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 I always go back to my playing career when I had a major injury. I hated coming in at the end of the first quarter or the second quarter because you warmed up, you've had, you know, you, you're ready to play and then you sit. He didn't enter this game. I don't think there were about three minutes left when he finally got in in the first quarter in real time. You're sitting like for 20 minutes. Anybody who plays basketball uh, can tell you that when you shoot, you're shooting and you sit down for 20 to 30 minutes and you start playing again, that's, that's not easy. That's a difficult thing to do. And Portis, who's already had it, that experience of doing it for several years, is it's just better suited for that role. So, you know, I think in the long run, I think in the long run, if Portis keeps on playing this way, he's not going to leave the starting lineup until Markinen comes back. But you've also kind of set up that problem too. Portis can't play to three at all. I still maintain against proper matchups, good matchups, and there's a lot of them in the East. Parker can give you time at the three. So at least you kind of you kind of set it up for when marketing returns. What's going to happen when he returns? Portis is going right back to the bench. He's not going to be starting. I mean, gosh, I hope – what is the move when he comes back? You don't think he'd send Wendell Cutter Jr. and try to get minutes of you know, Portis and, and uh, Markin as the front line? That, that I don't think would work. Well, I mean, the move has to be that Parker goes back to small forward. That experiment has to be tried again because Bobby Portis is going to go to backup power forward. So yes. the Bulls are going to have to try that at some point. They can't shelve it unless they're going to say, Robin Lopez, you're no longer getting any minutes and and, and Portis is playing a lot of his minutes at center or um, you know Jabari is just strictly a four and he's getting those backup power forward minutes. If, if that's not the situation, then Parker has to play 
small forward, whether it's starting small forward or backup small forward. I don't know what that situation will be, but that experiment will need to be uh, given some life again. But um, look, I understand your point, but I, I, look, I think it was the right decision from Fred Hoiberg and the, I guess the other guy that he moved into that but starting why? unit. Why? Because What's I think Bobby reasoning? Portis has earned it. He's he's been better in preseason, and I think you've got to reward your guys that have been better. I understand that he's comes off the bench and he's in that role and he's uh, functioned well in that role. But at the same time, if your guy is coming off the bench in in preseason and he's giving you seventeen points and six rebounds off the bench in twenty two minutes, whilst the guy starting in front of him is not necessarily performing, then I think you have no no. Uh, you have to make that change, basically. I think that was forced upon him. Isn't it fair to make the case that shouldn't Portis be playing better than Parker since he's played with most of these guys for two to three years and and, and Parker's transitioning into a new role with a new team? Isn't it kind of just common sense to say, yeah, Portis, who's a very talented offensive player, would probably play better than, than Parker? It's yeah. not even true for the last game, by the way, but go on. Well, I disagree. I thought Portis was much better than Jabari Parker. Jabari didn't have an efficient game. Not in game five. Sorry? Game five? Are you talking about game? No, no, I'm not talking about the Sixers game. I'm talking about the, no doubt, the Sixers game, uh, Portis was better. I'm, I'm saying the decision. Right, the last preseason. You know what I mean? The last preseason game, Parker was clearly better than Portis. It was a minus 19. He may have been, but I mean, over the five preseason games, Portis was clearly better. So I go back yep. to my point that he earned that starting position. And I'm I'm happy with that. But another on the flip side of that, I guess to the reverse of that, is Robin Lopez was poor. He didn't earn his starting spot, whereas Wendell Carter Jr. did. So let's talk about Wendell Carter Jr. and what you talk, what you saw from Wendell going up against Joel Embiid, and that was probably the toughest matchup for a rookie center, a 19 year old center coming into the league. You probably can't get much tougher than that. Uh, tougher than that, maybe outside of Anthony, Anthony Davis at the moment. But what what did you take away from Wendell Carter in his first game and matching up against uh, Joel Embiid? Well, this will lead in right to my criticism of Fred, which is the first possession down. Uh, Wendell Carter got called for a foul on 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 and you know on Embiid, and I just feel like that foul cannot be tolerated from your from your coach. It was not a foul. If, if they're going to call it like that, we have no shot of guarding Joel Embiid. And it was a touch foul on on Carter within the first two minutes of the game, and Fred stares out in, in, in the space. It's that's there's I, I I think this is so under underestimated is the frustration, the anger that players feel when they're not getting when they feel they're getting you know bad calls against them. I saw in the holiday had a couple calls against him that he was like, "Give me a break." And if your coach doesn't have your back in those situations and at least try to argue for you, that's fr- that, that's frustrating. You lose confidence in your coach. I saw with Levine. Levine was complaining on one play, didn't get back. Yeah, that's on Levine, right, for not getting back. But it's also a sense of frustration that I need to argue with the officials because my coach isn't going to say anything. That's the one thing about Tibbs I've always admired. He works officials. And I, as the son of an official, my father was an official uh, after his playing career was over in the Illinois uh, state and um, in the state of Illinois. And he shared many stories with me. There's truth to that, that coaches who, you know, don't question bad calls. I, I, I think there's a tendency, just human nature to, and close calls. If some, if, if some coaches are more likely to cause a stink, I think over the long haul, you might get one or two more calls a game. And when you have the second youngest team in the NBA, you need to protect those players. So Fred, 
you know, shame on you. Wendell, I think is going to be fantastic. The block that he had on Simmons, you know, how many guys in the league can make that play? Um, very few, you know, so obviously it was his first game. He, he did not perform well. And I think he got, that's the issue, right? You're playing against probably the best that you're going to see all year. He will continue to get better and he's going to be absolutely fantastic. And I've said this and I firmly believe it. Markinen and Carter will be the best front court for the next decade in the NBA very soon, probably within a year or two. And I, I have nothing but incredible uh, uh, admiration for what this kid. Well, they'll, they'll need to surpass Miritich and Davis if, if, if that's the case. But um, <laughs> look, I, I think what's interesting with, <laughs> with we Wendell go. Carter Jr. is he's. I think one of his strengths is the fact that he's a pass-first guy, but I think we saw a little bit too much of that in against the Sixers game, and maybe that was nerves. Maybe it was the fact that he was going up against Embiid and he was second-guessing himself, but there were occasions there where he had the open shot and he didn't necessarily take it. He, uh, there, was a, there was one play that sticks up in my mind where he... He put up a shot fake, didn't necessarily take the shot. He had an open shot beforehand, but then he went for the shot fake, took a dribble, didn't necessarily do anything else with it, and then sort of passed the ball back out. So... I think he's too unselfish for his own good, which is something Agreed. you'd probably want more so than the other way around. You'd, you'd rather have someone being too unselfish than being too Antonio Blakey, let's say. So I yes. think that will slowly come out of his game, but it's something to note that, one, he was probably nervous going up in against Embiid in his first game, but he did look a little tentative, a little too unselfish at times. So I want to see how that changes, particularly in this Pistons game. And 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 going forward, when he's going up against bigger bigger bodies, where I think he can take these guys off the dribble a little bit. He needs to be confident in his own offensive game. But against Embiid, we'll give him the break um, in in that specific one. You touch on a great point, and this is where I think you and I differ. I'd like to get your opinion on it because I'm curious to what you think. I think that's coaching. Like I think player like Markinen, the coach needs to make the point to the team that he needs to get his shots. And you see this in Minnesota with how Towns has basically just been, you know, relegated to a second center status, which is to me an absolute joke. Um, and I, I hope that changes. I, I, I imagine it will once as soon as uh, Tibbs is fired. But Fred needs to make sure that, hey, Wendell Carter gets opportunities and he gets touches and he's not just relegated to, I'm going to set a pick for Zach Levine. Do you feel that that's on the coat, especially when marketing comes back? It's going to be you know, we're going to create these opportunities or do you feel that it's more so on the player to make those opportunities happen within the offense? It's a combination of both. But what I would say is Fred Hoiberg made it pretty clear that he was emphasizing Lowry Markin in his rookie season. So I don't, I'm not sitting here questioning Fred Hoiberg and his ability to judge talent and ability to say, this is where I want my, my uh, shot shot to go through. I think he's very well. He understands where where he wants the uh, the offense to be funneled through, and, and, and Larry Markkinen is the case for that. He was very uh, clear in his words and clear through his actions that Larry Markkinen was going to get some shots up. So I think that'll be the case of Wendell Carter Jr. I'm not going to go off the deep end on that one just yet because it's only game one, obviously, and a young rookie probably deferring too much was happy to defer to the more senior players, the guys earning the bigger dollars. So I think it was more. On this instance, Wendell Carter Jr. probably being more tentative than I think Hoiberg not deciding to use him. I think they are. I think they know how good that kid is. I think you're really kind of evolving into a pro Hoiberg, pro Hoiberg guy. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here. I'm. Not, I say Make I am case. because I'd like to hear. I it. say I am, but 
I feel like I'm just defending the rational point of view. I, I can see this situation started starting to brew and it happened after game one because it was a and such an impressive start. Like we said, 41 to 38 lead after the first quarter, 13 straight made baskets. After that first quarter, you could have stopped it then and people would have been raving about Fred Hoiberg. But after the result, that's when that's when people get emotional. And I, I think the Bulls coaching position is one of the more emotive topics going into this season. And I can, se- I can sense it already that Hoiberg is going to be a contentious issue for a lot of Bulls fans. I've, I've liked a lot of things he's done. We've talked about the, the Portis and Wendell Carter Jr. getting inserted into the starting unit. A few weeks ago, I was sitting, sitting here saying, uh, I don't know if I'll, I'm happy with Portis, uh, sorry, Wendell Carter Jr. going in ahead of Lopez, but Fred made the right call. I was wrong. Fred made the right call there. I support his move to put Portis in there. I think if we're going to talk about Fred and getting his players to take certain shots or the right shots, we have to credit him for what Zach Levine is doing, I, I assume. I, I would assume you would agree with me on that. The fact that Zach Levine's getting to the basket more, he's getting better looks at three, he's uh, taking more efficient sure. shots. Surely that's got to be on Fred Hoiberg too. So there's been a lot of positives that I've seen from Hoiberg thus far, but I can sense this narrative forming that he's going to be the scapegoat, and I don't like it. Now, if he is worthy of that tag, then I will support it. But right now, I can sense that fans are growing against Hoiberg, and I don't agree. It was one play. I, I, I agree with all your points. You made very good points, and you're the best, arguably, along you and, and Steph know, are the two best pro Hoiberg you know, proponents out there as far as making solid points. But there was a play in that game. There was a, de- a defensive screw by Payne and Holiday off a jump ball. Do you remember this? There was a free throw violation. Mm-hmm. There was a free throw violation, and there was a communication. And there was a screw up off a jump ball. That can never happen in an NBA game. That can't happen in a grade school game. Uh, you need to communicate before that jump ball. And what happened was Holiday and Payne both ended up on Shamit, leaving Covington wide open for a three. Parker was matched on Sarge, Levine on Simmons. That can never happen after, after a jump ball. So there has to be some consequences for that. They have to figure this out because that's inexcusable, and I do blame coaching for that. I got to run, brother. All right, Fred. Thanks for joining me, mate. All right, man. Always good talking to you. Looking forward to doing this all year. So Fred had to duck off pretty quickly there, folks. I believe he's a keynote speaker at an upcoming C-Red rally, so I'm pretty sure he had to prepare his notes and get on the road ahead of time there. So that's why he had to duck off a little bit quickly there. But as Fred sort of alluded to, he will be on the show week on a weekly basis. We've we got some feedback that people enjoyed Fred and I going back and forward on Twitter as well as on podcasts. So the two the two or three people that I guess told us that they've inflated our opinions to the point where we've decided to to do a podcast together. And so Fred will be joining me on a weekly basis as a as a guest to fill in for a segment or two. So we'll be doing that pretty frequently. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Give us some feedback on what you think of Fred. Hopefully all positives, uh, but hopefully it's entertaining for you guys as well. But we recorded our thoughts about Bulls versus Sixers prior to the Pistons game. So as you can tell, we were very, very, well, at least I was, I should say, very high on what Hoiberg has been doing. Fred, not necessarily as much, but I guess that's kind of ironic because we're going to talk Bulls Pistons now, and that one, well, 
I guess it wasn't a great one for Fred Hoiberg, and I'm not sure I'm going to have as many positive comments for Fred in this one coming up. So joining me now to discuss Bulls versus Pistons and making his return to Bulls HQ is Kevin Anderson from NBC Sports Chicago. Kevin, thanks for joining me again, mate. You're well, by the way, you, you use the word mate. I think that's like required by anyone in Australia when you introduce someone. You've got to say mate, right? Isn't that like required by law? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's necessarily law, but it's definitely the my, it's part of my vernacular. But look, it might be law. I don't know. But uh, it, it's definitely the way I talk, I guess. And it gives a little bit of a, a different flavor for, among the Bulls podcasts out there, having a bit of an Aussie voice on things. But um, maybe that'll slowly creep its way into the Bulls fans in the U.S., yeah, you know what's funny is in our, our Bulls Talk podcast that we do uh, here at NBC Sports, they give us the metrics in terms of how many listens from each country, and Australia has a huge Bulls following. So it's clearly not just yourself. There is a, a big appetite, and it probably stems from the uh, Jordan era in the 90s where there's a lot of Bulls fans in Australia. So that that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, glad to take time with you right now. No, no worries, man. I'm glad you're on here, but it, it could also stem from maybe the Luke Shensha days. Um, that's a that's a bit of a throwback for uh, for some, yeah, some Bulls fans absolutely. there who may or may not remember Luke Shensha. That's um, I, I, one of the one of the few Aussie Bulls that have gone through the Chicago Bulls. But uh, that's a deep cut there. But look, I appreciate you joining me on this one because I just got done recording a podcast with uh, Fred Pfeiffer. We talked the Bulls Sixers game, and in that game, I was very effusive in my praise of Fred Hoiberg. So it's kind of funny that we're going to be talking about Bulls and Pistons here, and I can't get past that last possession, which I think you could fairly fairly easily put on the uh, shoulders of Fred Hoiberg in terms of how that went went down. So do you just want to give us what you saw on that final possession? Yeah, and so you, you could clearly say that Jabari Parker was not playing that possession correctly. You know, like mm-hmm. Ish Smith made a great move, and Fred pointed out, that Smith did make a great athletic move at that point, but Jabari's feet got crossed up and he went the wrong way on the play. And if he doesn't do that, then Ish doesn't get by him and Ish doesn't blow by Bobby either. It's a little bit on Bobby too, but in terms of responsibility, I put that more on Fred and Fred Hoiberg. I don't put it on C red Fred. I'm sure he has a lot of things to say about it, but I put that on Hoiberg because In that situation, there was just over 24 seconds, like 24.6 seconds left on the clock when Detroit started that possession. So clearly you know that Detroit is going to use, if not all of the shot clock, all of the clock, most of it. If you do get a rebound or get a turnover or they make the shot, you call a timeout and then you change your lineup regardless. So I think in that situation, what is the big reason, what is the – Huge advantage why they are starting Wendell Carter in these two games. It's because of his rim protection. That's what he's been touted for. That is what he's been scouted for and come out of college and everybody loves. And it's true. He's a very good rim protector. And having a guy with that skill set, why wouldn't you have him here in that situation? And Fred Hoiberg said after the game that Detroit went small and they felt like they had to counter that with a small lineup. But I, I just, you know, clearly hindsight's twenty twenty. but looking back at it, even in the moment, it did not make sense to have Hoiberg put Jabari out there instead of Carter. Carter would have been the much better defensive play 
in that time. And I, I get it that he's a rookie, but you started him for a reason, right? It's not like being groomed and he only saw 10 minutes in, in the season opener. He only saw 15 minutes tonight. And you didn't want to put him in that situation. Like if that were the case, I'd say, okay, you know what? I agree with you, but you're not, you're starting him for a reason. And he should have been out there. And that this loss was as much on the players as it was on Fred for the coaching decision at the end. And I think when you look at it, when you look at the film, that is pretty evident. Yeah, so so to that point, I'm basically sitting here as I'm listening to you, watching that play over and over again. I've got the gift sort of just going on repeat at the moment. And I think you hit on everything there. And, And I kind of understand Hoiberg's rationale in running that closing minutes of the game with Parker and Portis as his 4-5 or five combination. Obviously, that's going to be problematic defensively, but offensively, there's a lot of stretchability with that, that two-man lineup there from a 4-5 or five combination, particularly when the Pistons had Andre Drummond out on the floor before he fouled out. So I get the rationale from an offensive standpoint to really draw out the Pistons' lumbering bigs out to the, uh, out to the perimeter, but to your point, on the defensive possession there, he, he should have known that yeah, this is basically the last player of the game. The shot clock and the game clock were virtually aligned. Um, it was likely going to be the Pistons' last possession. I don't understand why there wasn't a defensive sub made in that game. And uh, I guess his rationale at the end of the game was he wanted to go with the guys that got him to this point. But really, it's just one possession. And you have to, at that point, put in your defensive lineup. And essentially, the Pistons run... A double screen on Zach Levine, who isn't a great defender himself, but he got double screened. He didn't necessarily know where to go. He got caught on the screen. And then all of a sudden, it was just Ish Smith versus Bobby Portis and Jabari Parker. And he essentially just split the middle and just took them both to task there and got to the got to the, uh, the rim at, at will, which you just can't allow in the dying seconds of the game. So... I don't understand why Herbert Hoiberg chose to do this. And I feel, I feel kind of foolish defending him as strongly as I did a little bit earlier because now he's gone and done this and I feel a little bit silly because, yeah, like I said, I defended him, but I think he's probably to blame here for the loss. Yeah, and that's, it really is. And if you look at, you know, anybody listening, if you watch that replay again, you certainly can find it uh, with the gifts out there. Watch Jabari Parker's feet. He crosses up his feet. He doesn't have good like when you, as any NBA player knows, you've got to keep your feet kind of not crossing each other up. And you see that. And if Parker would have done that, if he would have really kept a little better form, I don't think if Smith would have got by him or if Parker would have pushed him a little bit more towards the wing, then it, you know, Smith doesn't split the middle. Now you can make the argument if Parker gives him too much on the outside and Smith goes by him on the outside with no help. And I get it, but at the same time, it really comes down to the coaching decision, which, to the point you made at the beginning, is that Fred has made some very good coaching decisions so far in this short season. Like, going into this season, at the last few preseason games, in the season opener and tonight, he starts Carter. It's the right decision. He has Parker come off the bench. That's the right decision. Like those were really good decisions by Horberg, and you know certainly you talked about praising him for said certain decisions. I bet those were probably among the things that you liked that he did, and I liked that he did those too. But on the specific instance of the defensive possession uh, and the end of the Pistons game, it just didn't make sense not to have Carter out there. It just didn't make sense. And the reality is, if Chris Dunn is playing, if Chris Dunn is in that game, 
then it's probably a much different game and a much different defensive possession in that situation. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with that because look, he probably does a better job than Levine in terms of staying with Ishmith, but I, I, at the same time, the, the Pistons run a horn set there where they double screens uh, Zach Levine, and it's quite possible that that Dunn gets caught on that screen too. So it, I, I guess it's ironic in the sense that uh, we, we can praise Hoiberg for inserting Wendell Carter Jr. into that starting unit with Bobby Portis and, and make that move of put, uh, bringing Jabari Parker off the bench. But it's highly ironic that I guess the Bulls lose a game in, this, in, uh, in the final moments there when they're going with the Portis-Parker combination at the death. So... It is it is kind of amusing in that sense now that I've had a maybe an hour or so to digest the game, but yeah, I, I can't get past this one actually. It, it's it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, and it, to your point, that that defensive breakdown was not on Levine at all. I mean, they set up a double screen, and you're right. If 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 Dunn is in that situation, then you you Dunn's getting screened. You know, there's really not much Chris Dunn can do to break out of that double screen there. And that was, it was a very good pick that was sent. And Ish Smith is very quick. Uh, but if you think about the lineup that maybe would have been out there, if, if Dunn's available, does that then make it more likely that Carter is out there instead of Parker? Like there's, all, there's also like the domino effect of it. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. We'll never know, but it's something to think about. And certainly, uh, this loss it was a highly entertaining game. There are a lot of good things to talk about from the game. I love their effort. Uh, and certainly we're going to see a lot of high-scoring games this year. But that last possession, it just it leaves a bad taste in your mouth watching it because you, you look at it and you go, okay, what could have been? And that's not to say had they gotten a stop that Levine would have been able to get a shot off over Blake ahead of time. This game probably would have gone to overtime. And they could have lost short instance. It's It's tough when... It just it was more of mental mistakes from multiple sides that caused it. Yeah, and, and in a sense, I think what makes it disappointing as well because the Bulls threw away a, a game that they probably shouldn't have been in. And, and what I mean by that is the Pistons got up 43-point attempts, whereas the Bulls only took 21 themselves. Uh, the, the, essentially, the Pistons hit almost the same amount of threes that the Bulls made. So, the, Sorry, the Bulls took. So the Pistons hit 18 threes in this game and still only just won the game on the last possession. So in some ways, the Bulls shouldn't have even been in this game, but their offense was clicking that well. Their offensive rating for this specific game was at 117.2. Despite the defense being almost as bad as that Philly game in terms of defensive rating, the offense was really humming along, and that was in spite of the Bulls not necessarily getting to the three-point line at all. So there was a huge discrepancy on the three-point line. So I, I think that sort of sours this loss a little bit more because they threw away an opportunity to steal a game on the back of Zach Levine, who again had another terrific offensive performance, scoring a game-high 33 points. So let's move away from the, the bad play there at the, at, at the death of the game from Hoiberg. And let's, let's focus on the positives here with Zach Levine, who continues to look even better as the season sort of progresses now um, into game two of the of the young season. Yeah, and Zach, what we're seeing in Zach right now is what I think a casual fan thought they were going to see last year. You know, we're getting the Zach that is confident, who is a very good perimeter shooter, who is explosive, who is quick. I mean, this is everything that we were advertised when they traded for him on draft night a year and a half ago. And so, like, this this is why they signed him to the long-term deal. And this is exactly what the Bulls were hoping to get and what Bulls fans were hoping to get. And we have 
a special player in Zach Levine. This kid can flat out score in terms of athletic ability and one-on-one ability. We know his defensive issues, and he's working on those. We know that. But from an offensive standpoint, like we're seeing an elite score and elite scoring ability. And it will not surprise me if he averages 25 a game this year and is an Eastern Conference All-Star come February. I mean, he, he is that good, and he is rightly so the focal point of the offense. Now, that may change back, but right now – this is what Zach was going to be. And anyone who was upset that they signed with that long-term deal because he didn't play well coming off ACL surgery last year, I hope you see what we saw the last two games. There. Okay, you know what? This is the real deal. This is the Zach Levine we wanted, and this is why they made the trade for him, Jimmy Butler, and the seventh pick, and then Chris Dunn. I mean, you look at that trade, and it's the right decision back then, and it was the right decision now. Yeah, and look, it, just by coincidence, last time we actually did a podcast was when Zach Levine signed his, his uh, or re-signed with the Bulls, or the Bulls matched his contract offer from the Kings. So it, it's good to see that we've come from where we were a couple of months back, where we weren't necessarily saying it was a horrible deal, um, but it, there were some risks involved with that contract, obviously, to the point where we are now, where Zach Levine looks like a completely different player, a much more efficient player, a much more complete offensive player. So in the space of a few months... And since we last spoke, even, it seems like we've got a, a new version of Zach Levine, one that I'm really into at the moment because he's getting to the basket at will. And, and that's, I think that's been the biggest improvement of his game. He's constantly getting to the line now, which is huge. You know, currently, over the two first two games of the season, averaging eight free throw attempts per game, had nine against the Pistons. And, and that was something that's been lacking in Zach Levine's game, not just last season when he was with the Bulls, but even during his time with the Minnesota Timberwolves. He wasn't a super efficient player because he couldn't get to the line, but he's showing at the moment, at least for the first two games of the season as well as preseason, that he's happy to get to the line. He's showing that intent to get to the line. So he's uh, he's changed his mindset here, and I think that's made him a completely different offensive player. So take me through your thoughts about what you've seen from Levine in terms of of his complete offensive game, but specifically him getting to the hoop. Yeah, he is putting up a James Harden-like stat line every night. And that is what I'm most impressed with. Like, for instance, you look at the Pistons game, 33 points on 22 field goal attempts. And that is that is good. That is, that is very good. And if he was just hot right now, like, you know, Nico's on fire, right? We could talk about Nico and what the Pelicans are doing. Uh, Nico's on fire. Nico's a great shooter. Um, if, if we were looking at Levine, who was just putting up seven for 10 from three, and he was getting the bulk of his points that way, then I think you could go, okay, he, eventually he's going to go cold or eventually he's going to regress back to the mean and his scoring average is going to come down. But we're seeing a Zach Levine who is not only hitting the perimeter shot, but he's being aggressive and not taking the bad perimeter shot on a consistent basis. That was something he had issues with last year. Now, you can talk about the recovery from ACL. His shot selection wasn't very good last year. And so we're seeing better shots. His aggressiveness, he was 7 for 9 from the free throw line uh, against the Pistons, which is excellent getting the free throw line. And he probably could have got a couple more foul calls and gotten in line a couple more times. And so what you're seeing from Zach right now is it looks it's smooth, right? Like his ability to change direction and get to the hoop and get to it quickly. I, I'm, I'm going, this is sacrilege for me to say this, 
but it reminds me of Derrick Rose a little bit with his ability, his, his cutting ability, and to get to the hoop very quickly. There were a couple plays tonight where he like went like just like Ish Smith split guys, to split Parker and split Portis on that last uh, possession. We saw Levine do the same thing multiple times in this game, and have some fantastic moves at the hoop. And we're seeing the entire package. I, I love what we're seeing from Levine right now. I mean, this this is the complete offensive package of what you want in a player. And so this this is what they wanted in the guy, and this is what we're getting. It's fantastic to see, and I think we can expect more of this. There's no reason we can look at these two games and go, okay, and he's just playing way above his head, right? No, this this is the guy I fully expect to get every single night. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. The way he's doing it, I don't think he's an outlier. Like you said, he's not shooting, you know, he's not making six threes a game and, you know, hitting 80% of his threes or anything crazy like that. His three-point shot actually hasn't been that great. It's been okay, but it hasn't been on fire. It's been, he's just his general offensive arsenal. He's getting to getting to the basket, getting to the free throw line. His jumper still looks nice and fluid. Obviously, he hit that huge three at the end of the game or close to the end of the game to tie it up at 116 there. So he's showing a lot of different moves there. And he's proving to be a, a very good offensive scorer at the moment. I, I guess the next step for Levine is filling out that box score a little bit more. He had the three rebounds and three assists tonight against the Pistons. But if he can start to get that up to you know four rebounds, five rebounds, four or five assists a game as well, then that's a completely different Zach Levine too. And I think there's potential here for him to not only fulfill his contract if he gets to that point, but to make it look like a very good one if we can get a version of Zach Levine that's not only scoring efficiently, but he's sort of starting to impact the box score in other areas too. Now, hopefully that's to come, but I think, you know, for the, the first month or so of the season, I think if we can sort of see this version of Levine continue on, which to your point, I think is certainly possible, then the Bulls have got a good player on their hands at the moment. But I wanted to also talk about Zach Levine's backcourt partner today, Cameron Payne, who rightly i think was killed after that first game by a lot of uh, a lot of bulls fans that were <laughs> someone like Payne is is uh is prone to to uh negative reactions from the fan base but i think it's fair to say that um he was pretty good today against the pistons and when we kill Payne, it's only right that we give him some praise when he's good and he was good against the pistons you know what he had a great bounce back game you know do do bulls fans want to see Cameron Payne start every game no, um, and we're very lucky that Chris Dunn's could be back Monday against Dallas. Uh, but we saw a much better version of Payne against the Pistons than we did on opening night against Philly. And he, he, had, a, he had a horrible game. And he said himself, shoot around on Saturday morning, that he takes the criticism and it fuels him and it makes him want to come in early and stay late and that he's aware of it. And even our own uh, Kendall Gill, our Bulls analyst, who's a 15-year NBA vet, on the post-game show on Thursday – said the campaign experiment needs to end and certainly after he played Payne played on Thursday I can totally see where Kendall's coming from in that regard but we got a much better version of Payne against the Pistons it wasn't great but you look at 17 points four assists and only one turnover that is a solid stat line for someone who is really the fourth or fifth option offensively on this team and so yeah, you know, the thing is, ideally, and this is something that I talked about with our uh, Bulls Outsiders crew uh, tonight before the show, is I would like to see Hoiberg take the approach that Spolster took in Miami with Wade and LeBron. Spolster basically took the approach that at any given 
players is going to be on the floor. That he didn't want to have them both on the bench if he could help it in any given moment. I would like to see Horberg take that same approach with Levine and Dunn. And when Dunn comes off the floor, I'm okay with having Levine as a primary ball handler for that stretch. Like, I'm okay with that. And so when you talk about the backup point guard spot, I would be okay with the backup point guard being Zach Levine, but him sliding down and being the ball handler for that, that 10 to 15 minute stretch that uh, we're not going to see done out there. And I'd be okay with that. And, you know, Payne certainly did a decent job filling in. He kept them in the game, was a good facilitator, made some really nice passes in key moments. Um, and it was good to see because I, I know after what happened on Thursday, he really wanted a bounce back game. And it, I think Bulls fans wanted a bounce back game too. Yeah, definitely. And like I said before, if we're uh, good enough to, to get after Cameron Payne when he has a bad game, then we have to be good enough to, to give him some praise when he's actually decent, and he was tonight. And I just want to give a shout-out to my guy too, Ryan Archidiakono. Seven assists in 19 minutes. I've got to throw that out there. I thought he was pretty good too. So the Bulls actually got some yeah. decent point guard play in this game, unlike the uh, unlike the game against the Sixers, which was always going to be a tough ask against game one against Ben Simmons. That was always going to be problematic i suppose but let's let's expand on a point there that you raised where you you don't necessarily mind seeing zach levine running the show once chris dunn is off the floor and it's something i think they should explore but i think for that to happen then the bulls really need to get something more out of their wings but at the moment one of the players that we had sort of projected to be sort of in that wing rotation is chandler hutchinson who picked up a, a dnpcd tonight against the pistons barely played against the sixers what are your thoughts about the Bulls' first-round draft pick, uh, Chandler Hutchinson, pick number 22, basically not being in the rotation at all over these first two games? I'm okay with it. Uh, I honestly am fine with Hutchinson not getting a lot of playing time. Um, if you watch Hutchinson in the preseason, one of the things that he really has to work on is his, his shot delivery is extremely methodical and very slow. He does not have a quick release at all. And that is causing issues for him offensively because you can, you can lag off him. And by the time he's ready to take the shot, the defender can close the gap really quick. And so that is a significant issue for him. And I think he would probably be best served playing, especially when Dunn comes back on Monday. It would not surprise me at all if a touch this thing starts to get some D-League, Windy City Bull playing time, G-League, Windy City Bulls playing time. Um, I think that would be best for him and like probably best for his development and for the team right now. I'm okay on not him not playing out there. And one of the things, big, one of my biggest question mark with Hutchinson after they drafted him was how is his defense going to be? Because the opposition he played against and the scheme he played against defensively, it was not an NBA scheme. And you know, certainly, I think there's just big question marks on how he is defensively. I, I quite frankly, it's not common. We are kind of in a rare situation that the Bulls have had a rookie start opening night for two years in a row. And Carter and Laurie are not your typical situation. What we're seeing from Hutchinson right now, especially for a late first-round pick, is typical. A guy who's got to get acclimated to the league, acclimated to practice, and is quite not a fit in this rotation yet. So I'm okay with that. And, yeah, the wing issues are a concern because not only – was Hutchinson probably projected to play the wing a little bit. I think most people expected Parker to play at the wing. And as we know, that is not a viable situation. And that's why Holiday played 38 minutes against the Pistons. Is because right now, Holiday and Blakeney are really your two 
backup wings. Yeah, and Justin Holiday was good in this game. 19 points, 6 for 8 from the field, hit two of his three threes. So he played well in this game, unlike the Sixers game where he was kind of off. But whilst I certainly agree with you, I think Hutchison at this point doesn't deserve to be in the rotation. I think the Bulls were planning on him being there. And he was sold as a bit of an NBA-ready prospect, a mature age guy that should be able to come in and contribute something straight away. But clearly not. that's not the case. And it's gotten to the point now where the... Well, the Bulls are leaning heavily on on Antonio Blakeney, who who's shown progress, but is a flawed player himself, obviously. So the Bulls really need to get Denzel Valentine back as soon as possible. But um, hopefully, yeah. we see more from Hutchinson soon. But I think he could be correct here, particularly once Levine is uh, sorry Valentine is back. We may see Hutchinson going down to the G League and getting some reps there because he's currently on he's out of the rotation and not getting uh, not getting much uh, playing time at the moment, but. Let's talk about that point guard rotation rotation again uh, a little bit because before the game, there was some news that sort of filtered through that the Bulls were planning on making a play on Shaquille Harrison, a point guard from the Phoenix Suns, another one who they got after. And in order to do so, they've sort of uh, the, the reports are that they will be waiving Omir Oshik. So quick thoughts on, on that move, Kevin. Well, first off, the, the second part of it, the Oshik move made sense. Yeah is not ready to play it doesn't look like he's going to be ready to play anytime soon and it was the final year of his deal he's got a three million guaranteed for next year which the bulls are now on the hook for a salary cap perspective for that three million uh next summer they can stretch it if they want to uh down to a million uh, then pay the other two million over the next two years after that but it made it made sense and shaquille harrison uh, is a kid who's got good size. He played very, very limited minutes, uh, you know, so far. But you know, I'm I'm okay with that. Like I'm I'm okay with that move. Like if you want to bring a guy in, if you're not 100% sold on campaign or Tyler Eulis being your guys, bring somebody else in. I, I'm totally fine with that move. And then having a chic wave makes a total sense from multiple perspectives. Yeah, it's an interesting move, and, and look, uh, for for Bulls fans who who aren't aware, you should be following Kevin online because he's one of the uh, the better capologists that we have amongst Bulls Twitter. And this doesn't really affect 2019 free agency too much. Uh, the Ashik was always going to be gone next season. What they do with his three million dollars, we expect that to be stretched next season. Well, I hope so at least, given that they're they're aiming for 29 free agency. But even Shaq Harrison, he's not going to be a big money player who's on. Um, too much money that's going to impact 2019. So it's going to be an interesting end of the bench move, but probably one that makes sense given that Ashik effectively is medically retired at this point. So sad for Ashik, but it probably made sense for the Bulls to do this. So let's see what they get out of Shaq Harrison. But before I let you go, Kevin, I wanted to get your thoughts on Jabari Parker leaving this game with, uh, sorry, without speaking to the media, I suppose. This is the second time he's done this now. And obviously we talked about it before that he was involved in that that final uh, defensive meltdown there. What, what do you make about Jabari sort of skipping out on the press here and, and not necessarily coming to media and, and sort of addressing these issues? I'd like to get your take on it. Uh, I get it. I get that he doesn't. I mean, here's the thing. Jabari hasn't had a great relationship with the Chicago media so far. Um, he is not very talkative. He's not very forthcoming. Uh, he doesn't want to open up too much uh, about himself. He doesn't want to open up about his role. Uh, I, I, I get it. Like, I totally get where he's coming from. And, and in this situation, 
there are a lot of question marks. Like we let's go back a week ago and we talk about when it came out that Fred was going to bench at least for the final couple preseason games that Fred was going to bench Jabari after coming in and everyone being sold that Jabari was the start of the three. Jabari's initial public reaction to that was no comment. Jabari, what are your thoughts on coming off the bench? No comment. And so when a guy says that, what's that really mean? It means he's not happy with it, right? Like if, if I were to go, hey, Mark, uh, you know, I want to give you a, a promotion and a raise. Uh, what do you think? Oh, you, uh, you'd have a lot to say. You're like, oh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Uh, Mark, uh, yeah, we're going to cut your salary in half, and uh, we're going we're gonna to put you in a different role where you're not going to be impactful in your job as much as you were, and you go no comment. Like, how would he really feel? Like, this clearly he's not happy with his role right now with the situation, and it's just it's a microcosm of what happened on that last play because one of when Jabari first signed with the Bulls, he was asked about his defense. We know his defense has been an issue in Milwaukee, and he went on the radio and he said something to the effect of, you know, they don't pay me to play defense, or you know, the defense is not that important, right? Um, and that's still an issue. So what happens on the last play? There's a defensive miscue. It's a defensive mistake. And so it's a microcosm of what we've got of Jabari Parker this year, a guy who can hit a shot, who can give you some scoring in bunches, who is great on the second unit, but is not that talented defensively. And so I'm, I get it. You know, him, him not talking afterwards can seem like a little bit of a cop-out. But honestly, what is he going to say, right? Like if he, if he were to have met with the media and said, you know what, guys, that's my fault. Uh, I got crossed up with my footwork. I should have pushed him out more to the wing uh, instead of uh, letting him slide by me on the inside. I'm sorry. Like does that really change anything? It doesn't. It's just it's, it's talk show fodder, and it's something for the media to talk about and fans to talk about. So him not talking in that instance, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me that much. So that sounded like the fan talking, but as a studio content manager for NBC Sports Chicago, what do you, what do you think is better for you, to have him talk or not to talk? Oh, to have him talk, absolutely. Yeah. If he says no comment again or owns up to it and publicly apologizes to it or blames someone else for it, no matter, no matter what direction he goes with that instance, like I, it's better TV, it's better for the media, and certainly in, in, in our job and my job, what I do, I would love to hear him talk in that situation, but if I look at it from the other side, from a, a just a observer side and not tied into my role, uh, I'm okay with him not talking. I would love him to talk, but I'm okay with him not talking. Yeah, it'd be funny if this becomes a thing, though, because uh, him not, ter- not talking may become content in itself, though. So um, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, it, it's, it's happened twice now. It may happen a third or a fourth time. Who knows? We'll, we'll see how it happens. But it's just an interesting side note after the game, how that sort of transpired. But look, the Bulls have got the Dallas Mavericks on Monday, a team who aren't super tight defensively themselves. So there's a good opportunity here for the team to bounce back and collect their first win of the season. But until then, Kevin, I appreciate you jumping on the line, mate, and talking Bulls Pistons with me. And uh, we'll do we'll definitely do this again as the sort of season is progressing here. Anytime, Mark. I love talking with you. You know your stuff. And uh, I love talking with uh, our friends in Australia and the Bulls fans there and uh, reach a different audience. But anytime you want to chat, let me know. Definitely. And tell the people where they can follow you online if they aren't already doing so. I'm sure they are, but just, just in case. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, NBCSportsChicago.com. Uh, we actually have a new app in the Google and Apple stores. It's called the My Teams app. And the cool thing about that app is there is uh, you can set what teams you want to follow. So if you only want information on the Bulls, download the My Teams app and just have the Bulls in your settings, and you will get all the Bulls content we can possibly provide from podcasts to breakdowns, a video to articles uh, from our writers to uh, columns from uh, Mark Schnowski, Will Purdue, and Kendall Gill. So I highly recommend that. And personally, if you want to uh, hit me up on Twitter, uh, at Kevin underscore NBCS is my Twitter account. Uh, if you love Star Wars or the NBA, I'm your guy. Uh, if you don't <laughs> love those things, then I don't recommend following me. <laughs> I'm sure most people will be okay with that. But uh, Kevin, again, I appreciate you jumping on, man. You got it, Mark. So that just about does it for this week, Bulls fans. So thank you for joining me on this episode of Bulls HQ. We'll be back again in a week's time to wrap up the the latest news, games, all the analysis of the, the last week or so of Bulls basketball. So be on the lookout for that next Monday, same time as usual. Be talking Bulls versus Dallas as well as the couple games against the Charlotte Hornets and maybe even the Atlanta Hawks game. There's about four games this week coming up for the Bulls. So a big week, a good opportunity here for to get some wins on the board, particularly against the Mavericks and the Atlanta Hawks. So we'll see how the Bulls do. We'll see what other news filters through. But until then, follow the show on Twitter at BullsHQPod and you can catch me on Twitter too, at NKHoops on Twitter as well. So do that, follow us, uh, follow the show along and be on the lookout for it on your feeds in a week or so. Until then, thanks for joining me. Hope you all enjoy your week coming up and I'll talk to you all again next time. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.